document. So for those of you that are joining us on Facebook, um, John Cirrus Sick, all of the available substitutes are off gallivanting in other locations, um, and uh, we have no worship leaders either at this moment, so they resurrected me and brought me back for this evening's study. So um, I'm just jumping in to John chapter 6, where uh, the Lord has really been uh, ministering uh, to me. This is where I've been concentrating my study in the past couple of days, and uh, not a message that um, you know I have uh, you know specifically been like I say verse by verse going through. Uh, you know, as far as with a group or anything, it's just where I personally am in the Word right now. So. Um, John chapter 6, verse 1, it says, after uh, these things. So, uh, you know, we could just generalize it as ministry. Um, We could talk about it that way. Uh, You go back as far as chapter 5, verse 1, and you see uh, Jesus healing uh, the man at the pool of Bethesda. And then uh, he talks about uh, honoring uh, Father's and the, the father and the son, uh, you know, together synonymously, if you honor the son, then you honor the father, beginning in chapter 5, verse 16. So, you know, more foundational doctrinal teaching, uh, uh, John chapter 5, verse 24, life and judgment are through the son. So he's uh, um, uh, qualifying his authority and, uh, and clarifying that. Um, then talks about the fourfold witness uh, in uh, 5, beginning at verse 31. Um, and, you know, he gives several different things, particularly about, uh, you know, his own testimony and the prophet's testimony and uh, the works speak for themselves. And uh, so now he comes to this place after these things. Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Just for clarification's sake, when you're reading through, sometimes it separates those completely, and you'll just be reading about the Sea of Tiberias, and other times Sea of Galilee, and the clarification is it's it's the same thing. Um, it, it is a huge lake. Okay, It's not Great Lakes uh, level of size, but it is a very large lake, and uh, sitting on one side of it, as becomes part of this account later, um, you know, being able to see all the way across, it's it's miles and miles, depending on uh, where you are. Uh, you could, um, you know, perhaps see boats and people on the other side, depending on where you are. Other times, can't see the distance across. So, very very big lake. He goes over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him. Now we're going to see, if you jump down to verse 4, now the Passover feast, a feast of the Jews, was near. So this is part of what contributes to the great multitude. Okay, There's a, a huge number of people that are coming to Jerusalem to be part of this feast. And so... Um, you know, the you know, natural tendency of people following Jesus because he performs miracles and he particularly heals people is now even further exaggerated by the fact that there are pilgrims that are venturing into Jerusalem. And so now there are throngs who have heard about Jesus and others who have not, who are coming into the land and they're hearing the rumors and the gossip about Jesus' ministry and work and the things that are presently happening and they're thronging to Jesus. So then a great multitude followed him because they saw the signs which he performed on those who were diseased. So there the clarification of the healing that is taking place. It says, and Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now this is something we see Jesus do repeatedly, and honestly, it's to thin the crowd. Okay, when you start hiking up two, three, four, five thousand feet, um, you know, the the followers are going to fade off uh, regardless of how determined they are. And when you get to the place, you know, if you summit, um, then um, the few you have are going to be 
dedicated to your cause and what you're teaching, and they, they want to listen. They're there very purposefully. So he separates himself this way, and we're going to see that again, uh, that Jesus separates himself purposely. The, the strong encouragement to us is if Jesus Christ does this, you know, why aren't we doing it? You know, we should take the opportunity to get away, to shut things off. Um, I recently heard a speaker who's um, pastor, Christian teacher, but he's the world's leading researcher on brain function and brain activity. And in particular, his areas of study most recently have to do with the effects of electronics on the brain and particularly the phones that we carry all the time uh, with us. And what is really alarming is uh, the way that uh, it is an addiction. And when I say that, we all kind of go, yeah, right, I know what you mean. No, no. It's literally an addiction, equal to cocaine, equal to cocaine, equal to heroin. Uh, His latest publication, Digital Cocaine, is available both in print and audio. And he's done brain survey studies of how the use of that phone and our computers... uh, is as damaging to our brain as heroin and cocaine. Equal. You know, do brain scan, same level of damage being done. Uh, you know, do um, habitual studies with addicts, heroin addicts, methamphetamine addicts, and children using tablets, and all of their withdrawal symptoms are identical, including flu-like symptoms, Right. Uh, it's really, it's very, very convicting, very convicting when we realize uh, this point being um, you don't know how much it's affecting you, okay? If this sounds like I'm being melodramatic, okay, it's literal. Um, having the phone with you and it just being able to hear not, even if you never went and looked at the phone, just being able to hear throughout the day the notifications that go off causes as much stress as any of the messages would create. If you went over, picked it up, and read a message that you had to go do something physically and take care of, just hearing the notification creates as much stress in your body. Uh, that's insane. Uh, you know, th- you know, He points out that they've done extensive studies that, you know, get to the end of the day and people are exhausted and wiped out and they feel sick. And they'll even say that. I just, I can't understand. I didn't, you know, I wasn't shoveling ditches all day, but I feel like I have. The stress is what they're attributing because they can take it away where they're not able to connect with the phone, hear the notification at all, get it completely out of their environment and they recuperate, they recover. Uh, you know, when I say damage, you, you go look up uh, digital cocaine and, and examine what's going on inside that study all over the world. This guy, this, the research he does is for world governments. He's not just some Christian kook hiding in a closet who, you know, their governments are saying if we introduce digital learning. In the schools, how effective is it going to be? And what they're discovering is, no, it's very damaging. Okay. So like South Africa <clears throat> has not invested in much of any <coughs> digital learning because they've watched America wreck itself. So <coughs> all of that from Jesus got alone. We need to get alone. You need, to get, you need to separate from the world. You need to take your pen and your pad of paper and your Bible and just hear from God. Just just pray. You don't, you know, for all of us that say, oh, I use my computer, I, I use my phone for Bible study. What they're discovering is it, it's distracting us way more than it's actually enabling us. 
So, so if you just set the thing aside completely and you use books to do the same research, then uh, what you would find is that you're, um, uh, you know, w way more accomplished by the end of the study. You, you've, you've taken in much more. So anyway, getting alone. Uh, here Jesus goes up on the mountain uh, to try and uh, be with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast, as we read, of the Jews was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, a couple of things um, within this. Luke, in his account, has details that are not recorded here. The first of which is that Jesus coming down to be with the multitude, he taught them all day. So there's this crowd that we're reading about now doesn't just gather to him suddenly. <clears throat> They've been with him for a whole day and he's been teaching them. And now <clears throat> the day is almost spent and the people are hungry. So, you know, there's a backstory uh, to this. Secondly, Luke tells us that uh, this is... Philip's hometown. We see that from a couple different places. So uh, Jesus specifically asking Philip is uh, a, a very particular test for Philip. And uh, it's, you know, if, if you and I are in our own comfortable environment and Jesus says to you or I, like, uh, what do you, how do you think we should handle this situation? Then we are probably immediately going to have a tendency to act like the know-it-all because this is our town. You know, we know the people, we know the culture, we know the shops, we know the bakers, we know, you know. So, so he hits Philip in this moment and then follow uh, what he says in verse 6. But this he said to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus already knows the plan, right? And when the scripture contains these things, we assume properly that the Holy Spirit is revealing this to us. There's not a speculation behind this, right? Jesus knew how he was going to handle the situation. You know, maybe Jesus told John that later after all of these elements transpire. You know, he tells John, I'm, I'm speculating, but something along these lines, because it's recorded here that Jesus knew what he was going to do. So at some point, what? He revealed to John, yeah, I was just posing hypothetical questions. I knew how I was going to handle that situation. Now, now in this, this phrase comes, right, that, that he's testing Philip, <clears throat> right? We, we understand Jesus is God, okay? Uh, the scripture is very clear about that. So Jesus isn't at a loss. Like, boy, I wonder what's going on with Philip. I probably ought to turn the screws right here and see what kind of response I get. The test is for Philip. I don't know if you've experienced this with the Lord. We have a certain level of capability and function, and now we come into an opportunity and we take steps and maybe we even fall on our face and we kind of go, wow, I wasn't as strong. I wasn't as spiritual. I wasn't as whatever I thought I was. I've learned a lesson. So, so it's the idea of testing a thing for its strength to find out what is there. The testing of Philip here is not for Jesus' benefit. It's for Philip's benefit and it's for us. We get to see what's going on with Philip. We get to see how it applies to ourself. So, uh, you know, consider verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. I don't know how or why Philip came up with this number, right? Um, we see Jesus teaching the parable about you know, the day's wages, Go and ask people to work in his fields. Pay them a denarius. Pay them a denarii. Um, uh, you know, so two hundred days' wages. Right? Think, think about how that applies to you. Right? What is your income? What is two hundred days 
of your income. That would not buy enough bread. We're going to see that there are 5,000 men present. We can safely assume that the crowd is probably somewhere around 15,000 people. It's probably more in the neighborhood of greater than 20,000 people, right? Assume almost every single man, because it only numbers the men, assume almost every single man there is married. Assume they have one child. We're going to see there's at least one little boy, so it wasn't like no kids were accepted, right? They're pilgrims journeying, so you think the whole family came with them. Average family sizes here, four or five children was very common in this day. This number could have been 35,000 people. Easy, easy, okay? Keep it conservative, 15,000 people. Right? That's a very small number when you're examining the possibilities in this situation. So 200 denarii so that one of them may have a little. I mean, how, how much bread are you going to buy on 200 days wages and then you're going to distribute that to 15,000, 35,000 people? Everybody's going to get a little bite to eat is what's going to happen with that sort of provision. In other words, we have no capability here. We have no ability to take care of this situation at all. I'm sure that spiritually you've been in that environment. Maybe even financially you've been in that environment. I have no ability to take care of this situation whatsoever. Even if I had, right, you know. 200 days pay. <laughs> not going to be able to take care of the situation. Way beyond my capability to deal with at this point. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And there's what I was driving at. Luke chapter 9 tells us that Jesus specifically had them sit them down in groups of 50 men, okay? Um, and it, it's specific about the men. So what, uh, 50 men, also 50 women and 50 children. So each group's 150. Um, expand that, shrink it however you want to, Right? Sit them down in groups. Point is organization. Jesus Christ is organizing this group to receive from him. Because all of this is going to come from him. But he's going to distribute it through the disciples. And there's a lot of application. right? <clears throat> there's you know, church, government, church organization involved. In this picture, you know, Jesus is pictured as the pastor in this setting. And he's distributing to those he's working with. And they are distributing out amongst. I think that there's a bad mentality in our culture that has been developed where everybody looks to one individual. You know, just the pastor. They're gonna, everybody's going to receive from the past. Just sit them down in one big group. I'll take care of all. There's no way. There's no way. You know, This church has never been very big. And I can tell you in the time that I've served here, 20 years, trying to take care of everybody's situation, very, very challenging. Very challenging. There needs to be other people involved in that situation. There needs to be groups and, and, and you guys have heard me, right? I, I go off on the issue of cliques, actually, in a positive way. People think that I'm going to talk them down, and I don't, right? <clears throat> Jesus had cliques. Uh, you know, people don't think of that, right? There was a multitude of thousands that followed him. There were 120 that followed him from the beginning of his ministry until he ascended into heaven. There were 72 that he sent out. The 12 were amongst them. The 12 were clearly a clique that he organized. Amongst the 12, there was Peter, James, and John, right? And then if you want to really get down to it, 
John makes the point that he was the one that Jesus really loved. And then he lives, outlives all of the others, you guys. You know, we get offended. Why? Because I want to be part of that group. And I'm not part of that group. If Jesus creates divisions and puts this group with that group, right? Here's all the artsy-fartsy guys. Here's all the motorheads. Here's all the, right? And, you know, here, here, here are the musicians. Yeah, why can't I be part of that group? I don't know why. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Go over and try to be. Maybe they'll let you in. You know, it's no big deal. Why do, we, why do we worry about that, right? Because it, it's about being approved by men. What's our need? What's going to come from Jesus? That's our need. How is it going to be distributed? Jesus is going to take care of that. He's going to take care of that. We shouldn't ever, right? The enemy whispers in our ear. Do you feel like you're being left out? You should feel like you're being left out, you know, until we've sunk into a place of isolation and depression and separation. You know, there, there are groups within every church I don't want to be part of, you know, I just I love hanging out with the old ladies, but I do not want to go to their knitting class at all. You know what I'm saying? There there are just certain things uh, that that's you know people get into that I'm not into, and there's stuff I get into. Uh, you know, music is one. I mean, tune through the Christian radio. I just talking to a brother the other day. I've had deep fellowship, and he suddenly tells me he likes old time gospel. Oh, wow, man. I mean, you might as well hit me in the head with a hammer if I had to li listen to that all day. That would drive me crazy. And if you had to listen to what I listened to, you'd hit yourself in the head with a hammer. You know what I'm saying? Christian metal is where I'm at. I, I'm, I really like a lot of growling voice and a lot of distortion and way, way hard music is what I like. That That is just my wife gets in the truck and that's blaring and she'll shut it right off and say, Why? Are they so angry? And I'm saying it's, they're not angry. You know, she doesn't understand it. She's not part of my clique, but I'm married to her. You know what I'm saying? We are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And these things should not separate us. You know, Christ is going to put this group together and that group together. And he's going to send his ministers out amongst people. And they're going to take care of them. What do we need? What Christ is going to deliver to us. That's what we need. We need to not worry about all of these things that come down with uh, Christ setting us into the groups that we belong in. So there's grass in this place. They set them down about, you know, uh, 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise the fish as much as they wanted. Now, The distribution that Jesus does here and in the others, the other Gospels, it he creates. There are two words. I'm not going to drag you through a Hebrew class, but two words in creation. One is to create from nothing, and the other is to take that which already exists and create from it. Okay. So when he begins the creation process, there is nothing, zero, right? There isn't free-floating particles of highly compressed whatever, and he creates it. There's nothing. There's zero, and he creates. But then you're familiar with the fact that he gets to man, and he takes the dust of the earth, and he creates man from the dust. And then he takes from man and he creates the woman, right? So he's taking what already has been created, and he's creating from that. In this case, this is what Jesus is doing, right? We're going to see that he takes these five barley loaves and these two fish, and he creates uh, from them. I must have missed verse 8. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here with five loaves, barley loaves and two fish, uh, but what are they among so many? I um, I have a sort of a weird sense of humor about these things. Uh, you know, why is Andrew even bringing it up, right? I mean, does this lunch belong to you? 
Why are you offering a little kid's lunch to everyone else? Is this your new friend that you've been hanging? Hey, I see you got some lunch there, kid. You know, these five loaves, two fish, don't overexpand that, right? These are small wafer cakes, smaller than an English muffin, right? So they maybe are a half inch thick, little biscuit, little thin biscuit, small English muffin, five loaves, two fish. This is a little kid's lunch, two sardines. These aren't big fish, right? This isn't something that you can roast up and a whole bunch of people can eat from. This is a little boy's lunch. Why are you interested in a little boy's lunch? Just leave the kids' snackables alone, okay? Why are you suggesting, you know, that if we were to distribute them to everyone? You know, some people point and say, well, Andrew had, you know, especially keen faith that Jesus was going to do something with these. I think it's more that he's contrasting the sense of we don't have anything to eat. We need to get rid of this crowd right now, right? Uh, if, we, if we robbed this kid and ate his lunch, it wouldn't even be enough for the 12 of us. We, we need to get out of this place. I get the sense of the disregard, that, that he doesn't have a heart, that, that this is an expression of doubt, you know, even if we stole this kid's lunch, we wouldn't have enough to eat in this. So he has them sit down, and now he distributes to them of the bread and likewise the fish. This last statement, as much as they wanted, okay? You're going to have to search your own memory. It's probably going to be a Thanksgiving meal. It might be a different meal. But this is the sense of eating so much food that you ate as much as you wanted, you were full, and then you said, I guess I'll have a second portion. And then somebody said, did you want pie? And you took a deep thought and then said, yes, go ahead. And they said, do you want apple or chocolate? And you said, give me a little slice of both. And you did plow them down, and now... Right. This is the sense uh, when it says as much as they wanted. This is the sense. The term is glutted. It's the idea of you've got sweats now. Right? You're just you're all damp and sort of delirious, and your you know your diaphragm is pressed right up against your lungs, and you have a, you've you've tipped way back. You know you just you're doing everything you can, thinking like oh, how stupid am I? Why did I? You know this is way more, way more than what I should have taken. That's the idea. Everyone, everyone, and maybe it's because, right, they didn't eat through the whole day. So they get to that place where their hunger is driving them. Now food is available, and they just take it in. And everybody is just wiped out by the amount of food. Now, right, jump back to five loaves, two fish. Just exploded into this amazing provision that God has for them. And we haven't even finished it, right? So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that, is not, so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up, them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Listen, the way this is written out implies, we don't know for certain, so I can't make the point. It implies that as the disciples were distributing, they were eating. So they've already filled themselves like they've filled everyone else. And now they take up what's left over and they have 12 baskets full. Guaranteed the disciples do not miss the point. And I assume we're not missing the point here. Twelve apostles distributed all this food and there are 12 baskets left over. There's provision for them. So very often, right, we go into the situation and as we see the provision coming, right, you can guarantee Judas was filling his pockets. Okay. Maybe the others were more noble than that. But 
how silly are you going to feel if you've stuffed bread in your pockets and now you're picking up what's left over and there's 12 baskets full? You're probably just going to take these out of your pockets and put them in the basket. Point being, we can trust the Lord through the process. He's, he's going to make provision. And all through this, there are segments where the doubt is foolish. The doubt is silly. When you've got the God of creation who's working at your disposal as your servant, you really don't have anything to worry about. He's going to take care of the need, right? These guys are taking from, we compile all these together. These guys are taking all kinds of lines of selfish ambition. Well, we got a kid's lunch. We should send these people away. We should let them go get bread. We should take off ourselves. We, self, me, mine, I, and now look, everybody's been taken care of. And if you hadn't noticed, you've got a basket full in your own hands. The Lord is ever faithful. And we miss the point, and the place where we most miss the point is before the need begins, right? Because we'll make all kinds of accusations against God, and we'll think negative thoughts about him and what he's going to do and how he can do it. You know, even if we had, you know, 200 denarii, what if you've got so much bread you could fill all these people and have 12 baskets left over? What about that, Philip? What about those occasions? The Lord is always capable. It's how much are we trusting him for the circumstances. So they've got uh, these 12 baskets. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now, as we move forward in this study, I just want us to be uh, thoughtful of uh, the fact that they're going to make expressions by the end of this where even though they've experienced this, they have doubts. So um, this statement, uh, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses said, there will come a prophet like unto me, who will speak to you and him you will hear, okay? And Jesus is that fulfillment. But they don't embrace it here in this time in history. They reject Jesus and crucify him. Jesus makes a statement later in his ministry where he puts a slant on that same verse and he says, I have not come in my own name. I've come in the authority of my father, and he's had a confrontation with them about it. You don't believe what I'm saying. You should at least believe the miracles. And then he tags the end of it with a paraphrase of Deuteronomy 18.15 by saying, "There, you know, I've come in my father's name. I've come under his authority. There's going to come another in his own name, and him you will hear. It's, it's a shadowing of the Antichrist the way that human nature will reject the supernatural hand and work and provision of God, but turn right around and look for those promises to be fulfilled by a man. Um, I've expressed to you before the diagram. It was a Scotsman who first drew it out as a diagram. It had, it's called the, the body politic and it's, it's how every nation goes through its cycle of existence. They, they begin in bondage. And um, there are a couple different interpretations, but um, the one that I enjoy the best says that from bondage they receive enlightenment. So that there are various science or you know, different spiritual things that happen for this nation, right? Bondage under the king, uh, you know, enlightenment comes, freedom, great courage is the next thing that is born out of that enlightenment. Great courage is born. And then conflict and the bondage is broken. And then you have prosperity. And I know I'm skipping some of the steps. In prosperity, the people will then move to a place of apathy, okay, and then from apathy, they move to a place of lethargy, which is different, right? Because apathy is the mindset. Lethargy is the lack of activity, right? They're not doing 
anything. The next phase is that they become dependent as a nation. Where are we right now? Right? As the government is just giving all these handouts. If you're not aware, the reason that you can't go anywhere and buy anything and get services because they don't have employees, it's because those people are being paid to stay home. They're being paid by their, the government to stay home. So again, this mindset of dependency then lapses into bondage. Every single nation that has gone, gone from bondage, this happens to every nation that has ever existed. Every single nation that has ever existed goes through these same cycles. You can find the body politic diagram drawn out in several different ways, but it always follows this path from bondage back around to bondage. Every nation that comes back to bondage ceases to exist right there. That's the end of them in history. Once they come to the place of bondage, they're conquered by other nations. They're conquered by the rulers from within their nation. Their freedom is gone. They don't exist anymore. The only nation that has gone through the cycle again is Israel. Because they repent of their sins and they experience the same course. They never launch immediately to any one step prematurely. The enlightenment comes. The courage comes. The conflict comes. The freedom comes. The prosperity comes. They cycle right back around to bondage. Then repentance. Then enlightenment. Every other nation has ended at the place of bondage. I think that this nation is deceiving itself. There's God's grace. And this was a nation founded in Christianity. So it's it's very much possible for this nation to emulate its sister Israel, to repent, experience God's enlightenment, and begin the course again. But we also very much more than any other nation, if you look at our politics, who we most reflect is Greece. Right? And you go, oh, Greece exists. No, it doesn't. Not as it did, right? In name only, it's lost. What was going? It's it's been lost. They are in bondage presently. So you know we experiencing God's great provision need to make sure that we worship the one who provides uh, that provision. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. There it is. Twice in this reading, he gets away. He actually puts great barriers between, you know, leave the phone in the truck, go for a walk in the woods, uh, sit with your Bible and your pen and your notebook and hear from the Lord. Just, just the Holy Spirit, just the Bible. You know, I might miss a call. I might miss a go back to that when it's necessary. Um, another thing that I suggest is um, I use the front and the back of my notebook. So the front is what I'm hearing and I write things down. The back of the notebook, flip it over and write on those pages. The distractions. Oh, I, I need to send that email. I write that down on the back. Um, I need to make that phone call. I forgot to make that deposit. But write the distractions down on the back and, and go back to reading and hearing from the Lord. Very, very fruitful. Uh, in my life, and I suspect it will be in yours also. Jesus stops them from making him king. He he puts a, a, an end to that. That has to do, many of you have studied your way through with me. Jesus specifically says over and over again, this is not my day. Okay, This is not my hour. This is not my time. Why? Because uh, he had told Daniel from the order through the Holy Spirit, the angel Gabriel went to Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, that from the order to restore and rebuild the temple to the coming of the Messiah would be 173,880 days. And we know that on March 14, 445 BC, King Artaxerxes gave the order to restore and rebuild the temple. And 173,880 days later was April 6, 32 AD, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt of the donkey, being declared as the Messiah, the King, and the Savior of Israel. This is not that day. And so he's saying, not my day, not my hour. You can't make me king. It's also the concept of none of this world is my kingdom. You know, as they're crucifying him and he's saying, you know, if we wanted to unleash the power of heaven, I could have legions of angels here 
to destroy everything in sight in order that I would be set free and not experience this. So not his plan, not his hour. Verse 16, now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, went over the sea towards Capernaum, and it was already dark. Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four hours, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. And he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. A couple of things about this. The other Gospels, particularly Mark, tells us that Jesus was meaning to pass them by, right? So they're struggling and straining at the oars, and Jesus wants to cross the Sea of Galilee, so he just, I mean, I'm not coloring the picture in much when I'm not definitely not exaggerating. Mark tells us that he was just walking by. <laughs> How strange a picture, you know? They are in a storm. They are terrified. They are, you know, exerting all of their energy, and Jesus is just walking by like, wow, that looks like they're having a tough time. And he's going to pass them by. And according to Mark, they're freaking out and screaming, and they beckon to him. And that's when he turns aside and comes to them and gives them the assurance of, it's not a ghost, it's me, Jesus. And he gets into the boat at their invitation. I think it's very significant. I think it's very significant, you guys. Jesus is always in your environment. Even if your environment is chaotic storms, spiritual, terrifying events. But Jesus is also a gentleman, and he's not going to invade your situation. He's not just going to forcibly take over. He's waiting for the invitation. He's given you free will. He's allowed you to live your life. You need to request him into your circumstances. It's very important that we understand that, that doctrinally, this is how Jesus functions. He, he's not just going to be like, okay, you've made a mess of things. Here I am. Let me just put this all back together. We probably wouldn't learn a blessed thing, would we, right? We'd put ourselves in terrible situations time and time again. If Jesus just always showed up and fixed things, you know, Jesus is always available is the point, but you've got to invite him in. As an old Southern preacher I first heard say, fellowship fellowships nothing but two fellows in the same ship which is true you want jesus in your boat you want jesus in your environment in your circumstances but if you're not going to invite him in then you're going to have fellowship with yourself and your own problems you've got to pour your heart out to him and then this statement right he enters the boat and immediately that they're at their destination. How many, how many you know, times have you had desperate situations and you call out to the Lord in prayer and the answer is there almost immediately, if not immediately. You immediately see, oh no, the Lord is here. The circumstances are changing. I can see. I've prayed with some of you in this room and I've witnessed these things take place in your life. You know, we are in need and call and then there's the answer. Uh, the Lord wants to work this way in our lives. He is in our environment. I started 15 minutes late, so I'm going to go a little long. No, not really. I'm going to consume the time. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which the disciples had entered, and Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, so they were aware of that. But his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. Then the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples. They also got into boats and came to Capernaum. So they crossed over the sea, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, listen, you've got to understand uh, that they 
they are fake in their um, reverence of Jesus. And that's going to come out. You know, oh, teacher, oh, rabbi, you know, when did you get here and how did you get here? And the disciples left and you didn't come in. And he just skirts right by all of that discussion. We, we are given the explanation by the Holy Spirit in the scripture that it was perplexing for everyone who witnessed this. Weren't you on the other side? And the disciples left. And where were, we were still on the other side, so we had to get in boats and hire boats in order to get over here and find you because we saw that the disciples' boat had crossed over. So how did you get here? And he gives them no explanation, and in particular about these things. I think that that's a great example to us, that uh, at times people will make lots of different inquiries and if you get that sense in the Holy Spirit that, like, it's not really necessary that I explain every detail here. You know, they, they, they sometimes want to press and they want it. They're not, even, they're not going to use it for the right purpose. They're not going to understand everything. You know, keeping it as simple as you can. Uh, my testimony is one of those things I do that with more frequently than anything else. There was a whole bunch of details that went on that belonged to me and Jesus. And for me to just give all of that out as an explanation, you know, I'll just like generically say, I lived in rebellion to the Lord for a number of years. And then I came to a moment where Jesus Christ revealed to me that he was real and I couldn't deny that anymore. You know, to explain that night and what went on uh, would be hair curling for some people. Uh, and, and, and what are they going to do with it? You know, some of them are going to relay it wrong. Others are going to misinterpret it and not understand, or they're only going to look for something like that to happen in their own lives. Generic. The Lord worked in my life, and now I believe he's real. <laughs> you know, committed myself to him, made major changes, turned myself into the police, you know, that, that level of commitment, that level of real for me. So here in this situation, they're asking all these questions. Uh, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, as we read, and then verse 27, or excuse me, 26, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Your, your motivation is tire, entirely earthly, worldly. You're not here because of what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart and in your mind. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Listen, we all know how this ends. It's Jesus Christ. Stop laboring for the things of the world. Yeah, you got to have a job. Yeah, you got to work. You know, where is your focus, right? Is, is the bulk of your energy expended on knowing Jesus more deeply? This is what Jesus is saying right here. You've seen other people uh, be converted to the faith. And you want the same things, but you're only looking at, oh man, look, God repaired their marriage and their finances. And they've got a house and a boat and a car. And I want all this stuff. Is that what you're looking after Jesus for? Because if that person is truly pursuing Jesus, then those things really aren't connected with the fact that they have a relationship with Jesus. I want free lunch, is what these guys are doing. And Jesus is warning us off. This is why I'm so opposed to the health, wealth, and prosperity teachers. Because it, it is such a lie. It has nothing to do with Jesus and who he is and what his benefits are in our lives. Do not, right? Imperative command, do not labor for food which perishes but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal on him, meaning on me. Jesus is what he's saying. You, you want to know what you should pursue? It's Jesus. That is the thing that your life should be consumed with pursuing. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we, we may work the works of God? Listen, the next verse is one of the more important verses in all of the scripture. Really. It sets so much Christian doctrine in solid bedrock foundation. 
What is the work? What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to speak in tongues? Am I supposed to be baptized? Am I supposed to go to the mission field? Am I supposed to be in India? Should I start a church? Am I supposed to do, you know, what am I supposed to do? What's the work that I should do? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Believe in Jesus. That's what you need to believe in. Think about your circumstances right now, whatever they are, the challenges you're dealing you know, with in life. <clears throat> Marriage, finance, education, health. What's the thing? What, what, what is the focus? Jesus. That's where your focus should be. Right. You know, struggling with health, you should probably also see the doctor. You should probably also get those tests done. You should see the doctor. You should get those tests done. You should do the common sense thing. The thing you must do is know Jesus. You have to believe in him. You have to know him. You have to understand him. The way that's going to happen, right in front of you, the book. Be in the word. Get up in the morning and start your day in the word. I just recently talking to a group of guys about the fact that you are your worst enemy. You are. I am my worst enemy. If you do not wake up in the morning and get your face in the book to see that your flesh is put to death so that the child of God is nourished and given life and all that it needs, right? then you're going to collapse. You're going to crumble. You're going to fall apart. You're going to turn to the things you always turn to, that I always turn to. And in the end, you're going to suffer as a result of that. Um, I've given the illustration many times. The leaves are turning, right? Uh, when we see the leaves change color, that's the true color of those leaves. Uh, the green was the chlorophyll. That was the life of the tree. The, the tree, designed by God in its DNA, recognizes the cold. The cold means snow. It has to shed the leaves or the snow is going to destroy the tree. If it keeps the leaves on, the leaves will get frozen and weighted down with ice and snow and it will destroy the tree. So immediately upon sensing the cold, the tree builds a cork layer between the leaf and the branch. Now that it is separated between the, the branch and leaf, the leaf uses up the chlorophyll that was in the leaf and the parched paper that you see, that's the actual color of the, the paper of the leaf. You get separated from Jesus Christ, right? He said, abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches, right? Abide in Christ. If you let anything form the thinnest barrier between you and Christ, his life is now not in you. And whatever was there that was of him will get used up. And what are we left with? Your true colors, right? Lies, selfishness, outbursts of wrath, drunkenness. All that is me will come right back out. Our true colors. We have to guard against these things. So here, that idea the works of believing. Therefore, they said to him in verse 30, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're back around to the sandwich. It's really that simple. They show up and say, you serving lunch today also? And he says, um, no, I'm not. And they say, well, we're not really here for the free food anyway. But are you serving lunch this afternoon? You know, they immediately go back. They're, I mean, the, the veil is pretty thin right here about what their intentions are. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. They are just hung up on bread. I say they miss it. Have you, have you shared the gospel with people like this? And, you know, you get all done making the presentation and they say, so are you saying I should get a different job? You know, they, or something stupid. 
They, they, they didn't get any of what you were saying at all. And that's how this crowd is. So is this actually about bread? Are we still talking about bread? Is what, is what they're saying. We want bread. So Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And there's the answer for all of us, you guys. <clears throat> if you're still pursuing the sinful things that you always did, if you're still frustrated, unfulfilled, you know, even in your Christianity, even in your faith, like, there must be more. I'm looking for deeper. Then you've missed it. You've missed it. Because the bread, right, and the cup that is Jesus Christ, which will bring you satisfaction for your soul, is readily available. And it gives this deep fulfillment. You know, the compulsion to go after the things that destroyed us. It is a thirst. It's a spiritual thirst. But unfortunately, everything the world offers is like salt water. You know, drink of whatever the world offers you. You know, money, success, business, drugs, sex, you know, whatever the world has, food. Consume and consume, and all that's going to happen is you're going to be driven mad by what you're consuming. You know, if it's salt water, it's not going to quench your thirst. It's going to make you more thirsty. And this is what happens. It's just an accelerated path. And it is, you know, the laws of diminishing returns. You know, you, you try the new thing for the first time, and wow, so thrilling, so fulfilling. And the next time, not so much. And the next time, very little. And after you've done it two million times, now it's just habit. It's just consumed you, taking control of you, and it's offering nothing back. It's just draining out of you everything that you were hoping for. So Jesus, you know, making the same, I, I, I quench the thirst. I quench and satisfy the hunger if you'll come to me. And so if you're not satisfied, you got to examine your walk with Jesus because he does still to this day completely fulfill. He will quench all of those things. <clears throat> so in this, he who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out, for I have not come down from heaven, uh, for I, excuse me, totally reworded that, didn't I? For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in the garden, we hear Jesus saying that, right? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. I will raise him up at the last day. So there, you know, that resurrection power is certainly for the last days, but the resurrected life is for now, right? The, the, the sin we pursued produces death now it kills our spirit it kills our joy it kills you know whatever you want to apply to your marriage your finances all of those things where if you pursue sin it destroys it kills if you pursue jesus christ resurrection life now yes when he comes and we all look forward to that to everyone who's passed away in the lord and is waiting and we have that great uh, promise from Jesus Christ and the resurrection, and he proved it by his own resurrection. So we have those beautiful things, but it is also for the now that your life can be resurrected, can be fulfilled, that the sinful hunger, the sin, uh, sinful thirst can be quenched and satisfied by the relationship with Jesus. There's no greater portion of my day than getting up and starting in the Word. <clears throat> 
You know, everything's sort of downhill after that, you know, in a bad way and a good way, right? Because when I start the day with him in that way, then I can glide through what what is uh, there, but it's also the high point, so everything is sort of a letdown too. The, the, the idea of quenching your hunger and quenching your spiritual thirst in your relationship with Christ, absolutely necessary. And I, I'll say it to you again. If you don't have that nailed down in your mind, you really got to fix that, that, that it is possible. It is attainable. Jesus is unchanged, and he made this as a promise to us. So pursue him and experience it. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, that's uh, the time we have for this evening. So will you stand with me and we'll pray? When I ask for your prayers, I hope you guys know that you're all still in my prayers. That's never going to change, this this fellowship and you you people and your faces. So, uh, email still works, you know. Text messages still work. Reach out to me. Love to talk to you. Let the Lord work in each of us. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace, and I thank you uh, for the ability to be here tonight. Please. Bless us, Lord, as we wait upon you and we see your work done in our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.